Notes from America is supported by Future Hindsight, an award-winning podcast that shares big ideas about participating in American democracy beyond voting but short of running for office. Join host Mila Atmos for stimulating and incisive conversations with citizen changemakers on topics ranging from gerrymandering, policing equity, and voting rights. In this election year, Future Hindsight offers an unaffiliated perspective into what's at stake and how citizens can make an impact at the local, state, and national level. You'll always come away with something hopeful. Tune in every Thursday to get engaged and stay engaged. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. So what I want you to tell me is whether you recognize it, if you can identify it, and then what's it make you think? I've heard it. It sounds like either Star Wars or like the beginning of a movie. I'm not sure if it's like Jurassic Park or uh, Star Wars. One of the two. I don't know. The last time I heard it was from a movie, He Got Game with Denzel Washington. It just sounds very intense. Not like something big is about to happen. It sounds very regal. <laughs> just The drums just came in. Here we go. This is from Aaron Copland. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Isn't that um ba ba ba? Oh, I do not remember. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> it's notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. Welcome to the show, and happy Fourth of July. Aaron Copeland's fanfare for the common man. When you heard that music just now, were you able to identify it? Even if you couldn't identify it, I suspect it evoked something for you. It always does for me. Because the music that Aaron Copeland composed decades ago, you know, bum, 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 bum. At some point, this sound became ubiquitous in our culture. As the sound of heroism, of triumph. From blockbuster action movies to Monday Night Football, Copeland's fanfare echoes through Americana. But this was not its origin. As the title of the original score suggests, it was a fanfare for the common man. And Aaron Copeland, a gay Jewish man from Brooklyn, composed this fanfare at a time when a particular set of ideas about this nation were ascendant. Ideas about what it means to be a patriot in the United States. A few years ago, producer Sarah Fishko told the story of Copeland's iconic fanfare in our podcast. And for this July 4th weekend, we thought, let's revisit that history and consider one artist's take on what it means to be American. Sarah Fishko begins the story in the early 20th century. The Aaron Copeland story is filled with ironies. For one thing, Copeland reached the height of his artistry and fame during the most desperate times in 20th century America the era of the Great Depression and the years of World War II. And for another, he first thought about creating music that sounded uniquely American only after he had left America, Brooklyn to be exact, for Europe in 1921. He recalled later he had read about an American music school being formed that very year, post-World War I, outside Paris. The instant I read about it, I thought, oh, gee, I don't know a soul in France. This would be a way of going and at least having some friends around and getting a, a start. So off he went. Once there, Copeland began to search for a compositional style. 
in his own way, says Judith Tick, who co-wrote Aaron Copeland's America. He graduated high school and did not go to college. Instead, he became an apprentice. His mentor in Paris was the famed Nadia Boulanger, who would go on to train everyone, from Quincy Jones to Philip Glass. He absolutely adored the milieu that Nadia Boulanger created around her, which was premised on the notion that a composer had to find his own voice. And for a while, looking for his own voice, he lived the Paris life, that lost generation life we know a little bit about from Hemingway, Fitzgerald, Gertrude Stein, artists and thinkers looking for new forms, new ideas. Copeland used to wander over to Sylvia Beach's Shakespeare and Company bookshop on the Rue de Lodion. One would see Joyce there every evening and uh, André Gide go across the street for French books. I really lived through this whole sense of getting rid of the past and developing something new of our own time. As it turned out, Copeland's teacher pushed him toward the new American jazz. And for the first time, it excited him. The great charm of jazz hit me from um, 3,000 miles away, you might say. In Paris, it seemed much more American. He wrote this piece, Jazzy, around that time. For him, jazz was the catalyst. It forced him to ask what would be a way to write concert music that sounded American. After all, pretty much every other country had its own distinctive classical music, said Copeland later to a group of college students. The 20s was a period of Bartok writing specifically Hungarian music. Uh, Stravinsky was very Russian. He couldn't possibly have been anything else. Debussy was terribly French. And, uh, so that and he came back to New York determined to write American music. Back in the U.S., he hadn't solved it yet. Author Paula Musigate says he was still writing as a post-World War I modernist in a very individualistic style. The music is more atonal. It's a stark difference from the more Americana sound that you tend to associate with Copeland. And it wasn't very popular. He and the world kissed modernism goodbye in the next decade. When the 1930s hit, modernism crashed as sharply as the stock market did in 1929. My friends, I want to talk for a few minutes with the people of the United States about banking. Copeland, along with millions of Americans, heard President Franklin Roosevelt broadcast his first fireside chat during the Great Depression. We have provided the machinery to restore our financial system, and it is up to you to support and make it work. It was in these years that FDR created the New Deal and said to the American people, we are all in this. Together, we cannot fail. And a spirit of liberalism rose in the country. Americans trying to recover from the crash, united around progressive ideas. Roosevelt's victories in 1932, and especially in 1936, were gigantic. Writer and historian Sam Tannenhaus. Democrats had majorities of a kind that are almost inconceivable today. This was not an era like our own of divided government. This was the Democratic Party forming coalitions with liberal Republicans. There was not only room for artists in this society, it actually presented them with a new civic identity and responsibility. The federal government was funding programs for artists, including writers, poets, performers, 
and composers. Copeland jumped right in. He was active in various composers' organizations, the Young Composers Group, the Composers Collective, and in 1937, he co-founded the American Composers Alliance. If you think of these words, league, group, collective, alliance, what are they? They're synonyms for union. It doesn't mean you have to write or compose or think in one way. It's somehow finding a language that you can share. This was growing into the broadest left-wing culture America has ever known. It even had its own name. They called it the Popular Front. Um, The idea was that all working people, all ordinary Americans should join together to fight the big evil forces uh, in the world. John Wiener teaches history at UC Irvine. He says it was a movement, anti-fascist, pro-union, civil libertarian. But I think it's an ideal that was held by millions of immigrants who had come to the United States before World War I and now were, uh, were growing up and wanted very much to be Americans. And in a lot of ways, this was their idea of the America they wanted to be part of. Believe it or not, for a time, the slogan of the Popular Front was communism is 20th century Americanism. It resonated deeply with the American left. They wanted to be good Americans. They believed in American ideals. For them, there was no conflict between being a leftist and being a a good American, believing in equality and freedom of speech. Artists like Copeland were captivated by the sense that things could change for the better and that they could build nothing short of a new kind of United States. Social security was created, unions gained the right to strike, and the idea emerged that the common man, a key phrase of the moment, could take hold of government, gain power, and achieve just about anything. There was an explosion of creativity around these ideas. Culturally, a new idea of America was being formed in two places in particular, through jazz, which was multiracial. It was dominated by African-American musicians with some great white musicians and even some integrated bands like Benny Goodman's and Hollywood. Hollywood was the creation of immigrant Jews, for the most part, who came up with this idea of an ideal America. So the notion of what the utopian American culture could be was coming from a much wider stream of sources than it ever had before. That's the beginning of mass culture in America. Movies, music, comic strips, the radio. To see the merging of traditional American patriotism with the spirit of the New Deal and with a little of the common man thrown in, you had only to go to a Frank Capra film. Thomas Doherty, author of Projections of War, prefers Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Which really comes at a time in which uh, America is looking at what will probably be a Second World War. What do you think? Daniel Boone's lost. That montage of Jimmy Stewart as Jefferson Smith. Lost in the wilds of Washington. Taking the tour of Washington when he first comes to town can uh, still uh, bring tears to even a cynical American eye when he you know, goes through all the, the great uh, secular cathedrals of American life, ending at the Lincoln Memorial. Which brings us back to Aaron Copeland, who was as swept up as anyone in the urgent collective spirit of the moment in the 1930s. It was thrilling, and the culture demanded exactly the kind of distinctly national music he'd been trying to write for the concert hall. 
He wanted his music to be part of how Americans saw themselves. He traveled to Mexico and heard Mexican folk tunes and used them in El Salon, Mexico in 1936. Emboldened by the success of that piece, he looked toward a similar approach to the music of his own country, just as the culture of America was being rediscovered and reinvented in a hundred different ways. I think you can look at the 1930s as the beginning of a renaissance of awareness about American folk music. As I went a-walking and a-rambling one day. And Alan Lomax is a key figure in any understanding of what Copeland is about. He was such a radical collector of Anglo-American and African-American folk music at a time when people really didn't understand what this was. And the other was a cowboy and a Copeland knew Lomax. He used to go over to his house and listen to music. Copeland soaked up the tunes. Lomax lived his life in the field. He lived his life in a truck, weighted down with tape recorders and tape machines, and he went to prisons and flood islands and remote places and recorded people. Copeland took what he needed wherever he could get. Found its way to his musical consciousness because it was so much in the environment. After the break, Aaron Copeland arrives at his signature sound celebrating the common man. Stay with us. Hi, my name's Regina, and I'm a producer with the show. You may remember that last year we started the Notes from America summer playlist. We collected submissions from you and curated a playlist that everyone could enjoy. Well, summer is here again, and I'm happy to announce we're launching our second summer playlist. A couple weeks ago, I had a conversation with the guys from a band called Wake Island. They talked about how music has become such a powerful outlet for identity, filling a need as they search for their place in the Arab American diaspora. So now is your turn. What's a song that represents your personal diaspora story? Here's how to send us your response. Go to notesfromamerica.org and look for the record button to leave us a message. Start with your name and where you're recording from. Then tell us the name of that song, the artist, and a short story that goes along with it. Feel free to include a little bit about your background as well. Make it your own. And please make sure that your recording is at least a minute long. We'll gather all the songs and your stories in Spotify playlists that will drop regularly all summer long. All right, I think that's everything. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk, and I can't wait to hear from you. There's a lot going on right now. Mounting economic inequality, threats to democracy, environmental disaster, the sour stench of chaos in the air. I'm Brooke Gladstone, host of WNYC's On the Media. Want to understand the reasons and the meanings of the narratives that led us here? And maybe how to head them off at the pass? That's On the Media's specialty. Take a listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. It's Notes from America. I'm Kai Wright. This holiday weekend, we're considering the story of composer Aaron Copland and his iconic work, Fanfare for the Common Man. Copland, a gay Jewish man from Brooklyn, 
wanted to find the sound of America, one that echoed his ideas about this nation. Producer Sarah Fishko continues the story. By the late 30s, Aaron Copeland's piece, Billy the Kid, was filled with spare, open chords and folk-inspired melodies. The composer had arrived at what turned out to be a signature sound. Where do you place him in the use of this sound with these relatively unusual intervals for that time? I place him at the top of that. I'm sitting opposite composer John Corleano, who's at the piano. He may not have been the very first, but he was certainly the one that is most recognized when that sound comes, and it's called Americana, by the way. What was he using to create that sound? Well... Aaron Copland wanted to preserve the sense of tonality, the sense of being in a key. The chords that came out of those scales were chords that had been used for 200 years. And he wanted to make fresh chords that still could be in a key. And to just illustrate... Tonal composers had, for the most part, made chords built around conventional thirds. That is, built around every other note in the basic scale. We have a chord. Chords harmonize. What Copeland did was he decided that you didn't have to build chords on every other note. You could do other ways of combining notes to make a sound like a chord. For example, you can use just one note above the... And you can get a beautiful sound if you play that... Copeland um, used very often two-note chords, and when he had more than two notes, they were very far apart or very close together, but they didn't have this chain of thirds, so they sounded very sparse, and yet sounded very beautiful. So there it was, a non-European, somewhat radical, very accessible American style. Tender and yet triumphant, simplified to go along with the progressive populist politics that had led Copeland in this direction in the first place. And it was patriotic, in keeping with a moment that celebrated the so-called common man. Copeland had found an accessible, identifiably American sound for his music. In that spirit, he had a strong desire to join in that most popular art, movies. Unlike some other ambitious composers of concert music, he didn't think of it as beneath him at all. He saw it as really this great opportunity to be able to share his music with many people and to perfect his accessible yet sophisticated sound. Smoke makes prosperity, they tell you here. Smoke makes prosperity, no matter if you choke on it. His first film score was for the documentary The City, a social film about city planning, shown at the 1939 World's Fair in New York. That was the score that grabbed the attention of director Lewis Milestone, who asked him to come to Hollywood in 1939 to score the film Of Mice and Men. Aaron Copeland was now a celebrity, 
and he was a gay Jewish celebrity at that. He was greatly admired by other American composers and had public acceptance as well. By the time of World War II, he was one of a group of leading American composers asked to contribute an orchestral fanfare to the war effort. It was the conductor Eugene Goossens of the Cincinnati Symphony who put out the call, and Copland set to work on a short piece, something that might rally support and spirit. As the fanfare began to take shape, the war was on the minds of the country's leaders and citizens, says Harvey J.K., author of The Fight for the Four Freedoms. It was hard, if not impossible, to think of anything else, and that had been true for the last few years. The debate at the time was so extensive. In that whole period of, say, 38 to our own entry into the war, it's really a question of not just should the United States enter the war or not, but in many ways the question is posed, what does America stand for? I mean, what's the meaning of America? At some point during that period, it's likely Aaron Copeland had his radio on. Columbia presents another of its programs in which prominent speakers talk about current topics of vital national interest. As the debate about America played out on the air. A Henry Wallace speech of 1942 had a clear common man message. Everywhere the common people are on the march. By the millions they are learning to read and write, learning to think together, learning to use tools. Wallace was vice president under FDR. His widely heard speech called for what he termed the century of the common man. He warned citizens that they must learn to self-govern and to fear the demagogue. It is easy for demagogues to arise and prostitute the mind of the common man to their own base end. Such a demagogue may get financial help from some person of wealth who is unaware of what the end result will be. The common man idea was picked up instantly by NBC. Not much more than a month later, the network ran a star-studded radio spectacular called Toward the Century of the Common Man. Next, it appeared in theaters as a U.S. propaganda film with patriotic music and images added to Wallace's stirring words. No Nazi counter-revolution will stop it. The common man will smoke the Hitler stooges out into the open in the United States. It was a real popular culture moment. He will destroy their influence. The common man's speech, Sam Tannenhouse reminds us, was a direct response to the views of time-life magnate Henry Luce, whose famous essay in Life magazine heralded what Luce had called the American century. And the idea was America would be, his term, his word, the powerhouse that would lead the Western democratic alliance and kind of bring its industrial and democratic might to the world a more imperialist idea of where America would wind up after the war. When the Luce essay appeared in Life, Orson Welles wrote, If Mr. Luce's prediction of the American century will come true, God help us all. Aaron Copeland, writing his fanfare in 1942, commented with his music, the common man moment was dominating the discourse. Am I going to call this the fanfare for democracy? That was his first thought. Just as the composer was searching for a title for his piece. Second thought is, will I call it the fanfare for the four freedoms? Because that's the key words of the day. 
By then, it seemed right to call it Fanfare for the Common Man. The title and the piece captured the public imagination. Copland had searched for an imposed simplicity in his music. This was one of the most celebrated examples. If you take Fanfare for the Common Man, he starts off that piece by having a melody that jumps without scales. Jump, jump, the next note. John Corleano says in this case, the simplicity comes from the distance between the notes. When he first harmonizes this, he harmonizes it only with notes five notes apart and four notes apart. So we get a very bare sound instead of the full rich chord. But Copland also knew how to orchestrate to great effect. So it sounded simple, but it also sounded rich. I think Copland was searching for a language that was simple enough to be recognized, but it wasn't simple-minded. It was the opposite of simple-minded, and I think a lot of his ideology comes into his music making. Later, the fanfare was added by Copland to his third symphony, and it took off to become the epitome of musical patriotism. This was early in Copland's spectacular run in the 1940s, one Americana-style hit after another. The Lincoln Portrait, Dance on Cubano, Music for Movies, Rodeo. Culminating in a masterpiece, which is Appalachian Spring. And there he uses shaker tunes, which of course are the essence of simplicity. Appalachian Spring won the Pulitzer Prize for Copland in 1945. And by the end of the 40s, he was back in Hollywood to do more music for films, including William Wyler's The Heiress. The envelope, please. And that earned him Hollywood's highest honor. The winner is Alan Copland for The Heiress. Now, ladies and gentlemen, he fired off a note to his friend and fellow composer Leonard Bernstein. Did you hear? I won an Oscar for the heiress. Price goes up. He'd climbed to a great height. But the world was changing. Calling the House Un American Activities Committee to order, Chairman J. Parnell Thomas of New Jersey opens an inquiry into possible communist penetration of the Hollywood film industry. The House Committee on Un American Activities had already begun its work in 1947, the same year as the start of the Cold War. Are you a member of the Communist Party? Or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? And they went right for Hollywood and the headlines. American politics was taking a radical right turn after decades of liberal victories and progressive programs. That whole world suddenly, um, once the Cold War started, once the Soviet Union emerged as our leading enemy, everybody associated with the left was in trouble, lost their jobs, or ran into problems elsewhere. Senator Joseph McCarthy had been voted in during the 1946 elections, and soon he broadened the targeted attacks. One communist on the faculty of one university is one communist too many. 
When we talk about McCarthyism, we always associate it with a particular kind of boorishness of the man. One communist among the American advisors at Yalta was one communist. And frankly, there is kind of a class prejudice in this, and uh, McCarthy's accusations against these uh, Ivy Leaguers is one of the cultural undertones of this entire era, uh, where you have people like McCarthy, kind of a working-class Irish-German, and Roy Cohn, a sort of pushy New York Jewish guy, up against the aristocrats of the State Department, Yale, Harvard-educated fellows who were always configured in the McCarthy vision as sort of uh, a feet, pinkos, alien people, both uh, ideologically and uh, not too far under the surface sexually as well. Something familiar, but turned upside down. He's the common man, you know, with the doubled-up fists who's going to chase the kind of effete, sissy, sell-out Harvard types away from government. And don't think that's gone away or ever will because it won't. That hits a division right inside the American character. We've got to dig and root out the communists and the crooks and those who are bad for America. And as FDR used radio, so McCarthy used media in a different era. And if we have a Republican president, uh, we'll be able to get those records, I'm sure. McCarthy realizes that you could get power simply by being a media superstar in the age of radio and then especially TV, which starts coming into many American homes uh, by 1953, 1954. So McCarthy can use his live television news conferences, his telecast uh, Senate investigations to promulgate his vision of America and not incidentally to gain a kind of political power that would have taken decades to get if he had done it the old-fashioned way of slogging in the U.S. Senate. Our hero, Mr. Copeland, was caught in all this. He found himself in the publication Red Channels, along with 150 other cultural figures and journalists who were now officially on a list of the unemployable due to their political beliefs and affiliations, a blacklist. And there were a lot of lists then, which created an atmosphere of finger-pointing, innuendo, and fear. The Attorney General had a list of groups considered subversive, that is, all of the leagues and collectives and alliances artists and activists had joined during the common man era. If you'd ever belonged to one, you were a suspicious character. Not only artists, but also teachers, civil service workers, everyone was suspect. People in unions and other organizations were being asked to sign loyalty oaths. Later, Copeland was questioned by Senator McCarthy and Councilor Roy Cohn in a special executive session of the Senate Permanent Subcommittee on Government Operations. During the two-hour grilling, Copeland was courteously evasive, not refusing to answer, but rather cannily dodging every verbal bullet that came his way. What changed for America's most distinctively American composer? Well, for a while, Hollywood was not an option. He was on the blacklist. And Senator McCarthy, of all people, knew the power of cultural communicators, so he influenced the State Department to create obstacles for their work. Copeland's scores and recordings were banned in hundreds of U.S. overseas libraries, access officially denied. But what changed most dramatically was his music. The creator of this widely loved and accepted American sound adopted a more atonal, internationalist approach 
much more popular after the war. Some of his supporters were mystified by the change. His best-known piece in the 1960s was Connotations for Orchestra, a much darker work for a darker, more individualistic era. He said in 1968, The idea of writing specifically American-sounding music is definitely out at the present time. Nobody knows when it might come back again. Copland's Americana style of writing music was out because the ideas and collective spirit Copland helped to create were out. He'd been an idealist, an optimist, a patriot, and his music had captured that. Perhaps he remained all those things, but he more or less abandoned his signature sound, and he was no longer quite the shining star of music he once was. It's just very difficult to be a a creative person who lives for many decades and, you know, establishes an identity. It's hard to ride the waves of indifference when you've been used to so much prominence. And I think for Copeland, it was very painful. He still hoped to reach people with his work, he said on the Today Show in 1970. How does a man, I heard you ask it one time, how does a man go on writing when nobody listens to what he writes? I've never understood that. It's, uh, it seems to me an impossible situation to find yourself in. Yes. But, um, I don't know, the urge to write is the main thing that moves you. A story of the search by a composer and a country for a national identity with profoundly divided results. That was producer Sarah Fishko reporting for our show back in 2017. Special thanks to Olivia Briley, who helped produce the story, and Bill Moss for mixing and sound design. Notes from America is a production of WNYC Studios. Before we go, last week we kicked off our second annual Notes from America summer playlist. It's our effort to crowdsource, with your help, a soundtrack for the long, sunny days of summer, and we want to hear from you. What's a song that represents your personal diaspora story? Go to notesfromamerica.org and leave us a voice message right there on the site with your song and your story. Theme music and mixing by Jared Paul. Reporting, producing, and editing by Billy Estreen, Karen Frillman, Regina Dehir, Rahima Nasa, Kusha Navadar, and Lindsay Foster-Thomas. Andre Robert Lee is our executive producer, and I am Kai Wright. Happy Fourth of July. <laughs>